0: My name is um, Paul Phillips. I'm part of the leadership team. Uh, Nigel and Joe, who lead the church, send their regards. They are currently uh, in Uganda as part of something called Karas Kids, which is a ministry as a church we're involved in supporting. And so that's where, where they are. Difference between when you start, and when you when you come up here, since the people coming in. Right, I, I don't know if you remember. Um, some of you might remember this one. Kind of school days, it used to be a game called Simon Says. Oh yes, shall we play? <laughs> <laughs> Simon Says, lift up his right hand. I got to think about which hand it is. <laughs> oh, I got some of you there. You know, uh, Simon Says, lift up your left hand. Simon says, lift up your left hand and your right leg. This will be easier to say. <laughs> lift up your right arm. Oh I could have done prizes here, but I won't be. <laughs> and now you might be thinking, what is the pastor's away, what's he up to when the pastor's not here? But if you know the story, the whole idea is, you know, Simon says, you know, we 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 you meant to just do what Simon says. And when Simon doesn't say it, you don't do it. And we're doing this series at the moment in church, looking at the stories of Jesus. And really the stories of Jesus are to do with just sharing about what Jesus says. And as people who are seeking to follow Jesus, who are seeking to live like Jesus, what we're trying to do is to hear what is Jesus saying. Because all around us, there are other people saying things. There's a culture and society we're in who say, do this, do that, say this, say that. Even within church, if you follow Jesus and you've been coming to church for any period of time, over a period of time, different churches and different people you hang out with have a kind of culture and way of doing things. And so sometimes the voice that you hear most is those around you. It's amazing how many times I and and people I hang out with say they do this or they do that because... And they compare themselves with somebody else in church. But what we want to do is like, what is Jesus saying to us? Because we want to do that. If Jesus says, do this, we want to do that. And if Jesus says, do that, we want to do it. And if Jesus is not saying it, we don't want to do it. And so that's partly the reason why we're doing this series of the stories that Jesus shared. I was going to do a blank one, so you didn't know which one I was going to do. But it's pretty obvious here and um, the other thing about these stories some of these stories you're very you could probably quite familiar with if you've been brought up in a christian family if you read your bible some of these stories we call them parables sometimes you can get really familiar with them and in that context you think you know about them but not necessarily so a lot of these stories are the ones I was brought up with as a child this one in particular I used to get told quite often in Sunday school and we used to act it out and uh, we'll read the story in a minute Judith is going to come up in a minute and um, read it to us but as part of it this person gets beaten up and I, I don't know why I mean look at me I look so innocent and uh, I'm so nice and so kind but I was always one of the ones that had the joy of it's the only time in church you could actually legitimately beat somebody up and it was okay and uh, me and my friend we always got asked to do it and, um, but as more and more I look at these stories I realise how radical you can come up with Judith lean on this if you want uh, how radical they are how costly they are how much they affect our lives you see there were more than just to be nice stories we learnt as children these are stories that are like this is what Jesus says this is how we need to live and react. So Judith is going to read the, what we call the parable of the Good Samaritan from Luke chapter 10.
1: Starting at verse or 25. Do you want
0: us to just grab a mic actually? Okay.
1: On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man... He passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he brought the man on his own donkey brought him to the inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus said, Go and do likewise.
0: Thank you, Judith. So a familiar story. You know, we even get kids' children's illustration books like the one I put up behind. But this morning I wanted to take time just to look at it and start to think through some of the the implications, some of the consequences, some of the the cost of the story. Because it's so easy just to kind of flip through and go, "I know the story." To give you the kind of the the context, you have this teacher of the law, and in those days when they taught, the teacher would sit and the people would gather around them. And when you had a question, you'd stand up, and you'd ask the question. You'd stand up out of respect and ask a question. In this case, the person stood up. He wasn't asking so much out of respect, but in relation to try to test Jesus. He wanted to kind of see if he could make Jesus look awkward, just make Jesus say something wrong. Many years ago, I used to be a lecturer, and it didn't used to take me very long to figure out who, out of the students, which sometimes just ask questions because they were trying to get one over me um, and try to think that they could maybe be Yeah, make me look stupid. And in some ways, it's the same situation here. And he asks an interesting question. In some ways, a flawed question because he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Do and inherit. What must I do to inherit life? And that was in some ways a flawed question because normally you don't have to do anything to inherit. Your inheritance, if you get an inheritance comes from a place of position, from a place of birth, because you got a connection with whoever has written that inheritance. This idea of doing and getting an inheritance. The teacher of the law and often the concept they had in those days was this idea that if you wanted to get eternal life, if you wanted to have this connection with God, then you had to do certain things. You had certain rules that you had to do. And if you did them, somehow you could earn your way into heaven. Now, Jesus being Jesus, you know anything about Jesus, he generally doesn't often answer questions. He just throws out another question. You know, what is the law? And the lawyer replies about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, all your soul, and loving your neighbour as yourself, uh, which you got from the Old Testament. Maybe you'd heard Jesus say it before. And Jesus says, yeah, go and do that, and you will inherit eternal life. If you consistently, as part of your life, always love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind and all your soul, and you love your neighbour as yourself, then you will get eternal life. So Jesus says that, knowing perfectly well that no one can physically actually do that. And that's the reason why he came. However, the the lawyer still doesn't get it. He's still trying to figure out what can he do? to Herod, what can he do to get that eternal life? So he can ask the question in a different format. He kind of thinks, well, I kind of just got this idea, I can just about grasp this idea what it means to love the Lord God with all my heart, with all my mind, and my soul. But what does it mean to love my neighbour? In some ways, It's a good question. If you've been following Jesus for any period of time, we often quote that verse, we're called to love God with all our heart, all our mind, and all our soul. And I could do a talk on that one, but we're focusing on the second one. What does it mean to love our neighbor? What does that look like? Who is our neighbor? Now, probably for the the lawyer the expert of the law was asking in his head when he was thinking about who my neighbour was in those days it would either be his kind of family his immediate family and his wider family or it would be what he would perceive as, what, uh, as a devout Jew somebody who was keeping the rules and regulations of what we would find in our Old Testament the way that they would do but Jesus tells this parable this is a really really hard parable I know when we were thinking as a leadership team what we should do over the summer, we often think it's a kind of a quieter time of the year. And so we tend to do a, a, something which we think is going to be a little bit more simple, a little bit more restful. And it seemed like a good idea. To, I started looking at the, the, the parables I talked to, and I talked to one a few weeks ago. I'm going to talk on one in a, in a couple weeks' time. And as I looked at these parables, each one of them, including this one, and I really started thinking about it. I thought, ouch, they're really, really hard. You know, if you come in here this morning and wanting a nice, easy talk, it's not going to be an easy talk. It's a hard talk, one for me to share and one for me to try to outlive. See, it was never meant to be a nice little kid's story. It was meant to be a story that radically touches at the heart of who we are and what it means to follow Jesus. Love your neighbor was never meant to be a nice little slogan that we say or we put on a bumper or we put in a nice little bookmark. It was meant to be something that was outlived every day of our lives. And that's hard. Jesus, in one of his talks, talks about the narrow way and the wide way. And the kind of idea is the narrow way is the kind of the harder way, it's a more difficult way. And this is a good example of it. Are you ready to go on a journey this morning? Yeah. <laughs> you can respond <laughs> and, uh, and so we're going to look at this story uh, I've got a little bit of insight there's a book called uh, I'm trying to remember what it's called now actually it's um, so like the, the stories of, the, of Jesus through the eyes of somebody from the Middle East and having lived in the Middle East as well for a number of years it's also helped me begin to look at different stories which I was very familiar with in, with different eyes I remember when I used to hear this story. I mean, this was kind of story. You used to get this in schools. I used to teach this power in schools. It was a popular one, and um, it was just me. I used to think people were quite callous. I was mean, just thinking, you have got this person is walking down this road. It was well known to be quite a dangerous road, and he is just beaten up. And I think sometimes we just don't get an idea how um, beaten up they were. In case you're wondering where I got this picture from, this is actually from a film called The Good Samaritan. Uh, In case you're thinking, I probably could have got the image from different places. And uh, it as close as I could get to a picture um, using Google search on The Good Samaritan, that kind of in some ways begins to convey the brutality of what's happened. When you do it together in kind of Sunday school or whatever it is, it's kind of like it's like you feel like you just give them a few knocks and bruises, and at the end of it, you just stand up and walk away. This person was radically beaten up, and it's important in relation to what I say a little bit later on. He was majorly injured; there would have been blood everywhere, and this kind of priest kind of comes along initially. And all you can see is this person who's been stripped bare, is unconscious, and is bleeding. Now the reason that's important is, is particularly in a lot of the world, and the same I'd say in the UK, is we often categorise people, put people in a box, according to how they look and what they wear. And so the normal way for this priest to have been able to figure out who this person is had been stripped away. This was just somebody who was just naked before him and he had to take this person as they were. You see, if if he hadn't been stripped, it would have been quite easy for the priest to be able to figure out whether this person was a Jew or not. You see, by having that taken away, it took away his normal boundaries. That kind of affected the way that he treated people. He's like, "If you're like this, I will treat you like this. If you're like this, I will treat you like this." But this person in front of him, he couldn't put into his boxes, and so that created a dilemma for him. You know, he wouldn't be able to tell by his skin because it doesn't matter whether you're Samaritan, uh, whether anywhere else from the Middle East, or whether you're Jew, your skin colour would be the same and your eye colour would probably be the same. It was a clothes and your accent. Well, this guy wasn't speaking. So he had no way of distinguishing between them. You see, if this person was a Jew that had been beaten up as a devout Jew, he should have helped. If it wasn't, then he had no obligation to do anything, generally and as the way they interpreted the law. If you read the Old Testament, it was an obligation. You also had this dilemma because this person was there. As far as we know, there's no conversation. If this person was dead, if he as a priest touched him, he became unclean. And again, he would go, oh, so what? He can just go and wash. Now, in those days, being unclean, touching something that was dead, there was a cost. For him as a priest, if he touched something that was dead, it meant he could not work. If I had time, I'd look it up. Somebody like Neil might be able to remember it, but I think a minimum would probably be at least seven days. It could be longer. It meant that he would not be able to work. There was a real cost involved. You know, you, like I said years ago, I would just think, like, just, just do something. What's your problem? Are you callous? Are you hard-hearted? Surely anybody would, would do something. But there was a real cost. It was going to affect his income. He could not work, he could not claim. As a priest, he could claim like an allowance from the temple. He would not be able to claim it while I was unclean. It would affect him and it would affect his family. This wasn't just a simple like, decision. This decision, whether he should stop and do something, was going to affect him and it was going to affect his family. That might mean they were not going to eat for nearly a week if he got it wrong and this person was dead. His family would suffer. His standard of living would suffer. There'd be a shame and embarrassment. And again, if you were here when I spoke a few weeks ago, it's something that we we don't really grasp in the Western world where we're focused on the issue of sin. In the Middle East, in most Middle East cultures, the thing that is big is shame. Honor and shame. And if he got it wrong, this was going to be shameful on his whole family, who'd be ostracized. that's the one who kind of did this, and look at that, I affected his family. And if he got blood on him, he needed to purify himself. And again, I didn't want to go into all the great depths of it, but there's a cost. You know, you had to go after whatever period of time it was. Let's say it was a week. And then you'd have to sacrifice something. You know, it's, that is costly. You know, when you're talking about sacrificing an animal, sometimes when you read in the scripture, you talk talking about sacrificing an animal, I think we just think, oh, well, wow, they just had like a ready supply of animals in the refrigerator or somewhere. You know, they're shepherds. Having lived in the Middle East, I know times when I've been to people's houses and they're giving me meat, and I know that might be the only meat they have for that whole week, for the whole month. And particularly in more rural areas, that might be the sheep they, just, they keep alive and they feed for the big celebration that they have once a year. You don't have lots. There was a kind of cost. There's a real cost to it. In some ways, it's hard to convey what it would look like in our kind of context. If no one else just think there's a huge cost something that you're saving up for all year maybe a holiday It's going to cost you hundreds of thousands of pounds You know this is not a, a cheap thing this decision before this man is going to really cost him in the image of society and financially what's he going to do? if he got blood on his clothes and then that person died he had to get rid of it by law and again it's not like these people had like wardrobes of clothing what shall I wear today? You know, normally they have one or two kind of main items of clothing they're going to work, they were going to wear, and he was going to lose it if this person was dead. What would you do? What would I do? That's a challenge. I said it was hard. <laughs> Years ago, it was, it was quite easy when, when I didn't know it. information. was like, yeah, of course I'd stop. But when you get this information, you think, would I? And a bit later on, I'm going to give you a little bit of time. We've got a little bit of time this morning where I'm going to get you to think about what does it really look like in my situation, your situation. See, walk by. The Levite came along, and he also had the kind of similar issues and thought processes going through his mind. So he walks by. Next thing is a Samaritan comes along, a good Samaritan. And again, if you don't understand the culture, it's hard to see. You know, the Jews had no respect for the Samaritans. We're told even in the Bible that the disciples would didn't want to travel through territory that belonged to the Samaritans. So they kind of went round, you know, they just added like days to their journey. You know, you think it's bad sometimes. Maybe you never had this situation when you've been walking along in a situation, you've gone to the high street, and there's just somebody you're having you, you just find a little bit difficult. You think, I don't want to have that conversation with them at this point in time. Let's cross the road. Am I the only one who's ever done that? Or maybe it's just like, I know they're collecting money. and uh, Just like, I just don't want to do that. Maybe you can relate to that a little bit more. I'm just going to cross the road. This was a major crossing the road. This was like detours of days to get around because I didn't want to face um, any Samaritans. You know, in John's gospel, it actually says that Jews had no dealings with them. And that's very, you know, strong in a kind of environment, in a culture where you made your money by barter. You had to exchange stuff. You had to deal with people if you wanted to kind of live. They were the enemy. For various reasons, and I won't go into great depth, they were seen as the ones who had kind of like compromised their religion, their beliefs. They're the ones that over the years, at various times, had kind of worked or sided or helped the enemies. Of the Jews. There was no love loss between them. If anything, there was sheer contempt, maybe at the best, certainly hate. And it was mutual. And again, it's, it's hard for us to kind of grasp this. I don't know how to even put it into your situation. I used to live overseas. It was a lot easier for me because I'm aware of some of these tensions that still exist even now. So when we used to live in in Lebanon amongst the kind of Hamas and Hezbollah you know I've just changed the story and, uh, and so if there was a Hezbollah fighter that was lying on the ground beating up it was a good Jewish person that helped them out you can guess that messed with their minds and I've done it before I have some Jewish friends and I've flipped it around and so the person that's beating up is a Jewish person and there's a Hezbollah fighter that comes along and helps them that also messes with their mind. And I I can't think of a good example. Maybe just ask God as you speak, but to get some of the idea of the hate and the the way that the story would have just the audience that was sitting there is like, these are kind of your arch enemies, your worst people ever, traitors. Think everything the sheer contempt for them. And then they're the ones, they're the heroes in the story. And this is just meh just they just can't comprehend it in some ways. But the Samaritan comes along, uh, and on various levels, he begins to take a risk. Firstly, he takes his Jew to Jericho. Jericho was, a, was a, Jewish, um, a Jewish city. If you turn up in a Jewish city with a wounded Jew, they're going to begin to ask questions. It's not a good idea for a Samaritan to go into a Jewish village. We already said they're not popular. They weren't popular both ways. So a Jew wouldn't go into a Samaritan village. They'd try to avoid it. Same way a Samaritan wouldn't go into a Jewish village. It was just like, taking on your head. It was just a bit of a risky thing to do. So he's taking a risk. He's kind of, To put it from the eyes of the Samaritan, he's now going into the village of his enemy, his traditional enemy. There's a risk involved in that you know, they might think, was he involved? You know, and, and these kind of cultures, environment, they're very good at doing what's called communal vengeance, i.e. lynching. And so he was putting himself in a dangerous area. It would cost him money. Here he is, he goes, and he pays. And I don't know about you, maybe on my best day, I think I'll, I'll pay, you know, I'll pay, it. I'll be in the Good Samaritan. Yes, hopefully. Uh, and I would pay, but he, he says, when I come back, I will pay more. Well, I mean, there's a couple of things that are crazy already. He says, I've kind of risked my neck to go into a place where I'm not wanted, Jericho. I'm going to come back again. I'd be like, I've done my bit, let's go. You know, I've done my mile. In the Bible, Jesus talks about doing what he says, going the, not just in the, doing the basic mile, but going the extra mile. Not just doing what you feel like you should do, but going the extra mile. He's done his mile, you could argue. He's taken him to Jericho, he's given him a bit of money, but he says, I'm going to come back again. He says, I will cover those costs. Again, that's a very risky thing because generally they just had enough money just to get by. You know, these costs could escalate. In those days, if you kind of vouched to say, I'm going to pay, and you didn't pay, you could end up in prison or you could end up in uh, slavery. This Samaritan went to extraordinary lengths. My challenge to me is, my challenge to you is, what lengths do I go to? Do I have like a bare minimum? It's like, I've done, I've done pretty well. I've done more than what most people would do. Maybe you don't. But he showed love. He kind of bound his wounds up. He poured on oil, poured on wine. In the early church, people pictured the Good Samaritans kind of representing Jesus. It kind of symbolized who Jesus was, reaching out, going the extra mile, paying the cost. And then Jesus says at the end, go and do likewise. Jesus did. In the sense of coming to earth. But not only that, the example he left us, the people that he had to reach out to that could make him feel in a situation where he would be judged, we read a couple of times in scripture where uh, Jesus went and had dinners with various people. And those kind of people were often like, categorized into certain situations. This is from Mark chapter 2. He went to visit somebody called Levi, and it says, While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples when the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors they asked his disciples why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners there was this aspect where they judged him in one of the another translation it says why does he eat with this scum Jesus reached out and spent time he went those extra miles what does it look like for us I'm going to give you some questions and I'm going to answer some of them as I would answer them as I've been reflecting on it. Have I had a bit more time? And then I'm just going to give you some timing. I didn't know what Chris was going to do, actually, but, uh, in the sense of the prayers. But again, just maybe break down into twos or threes in a minute and just reflect on this. What does it look like for us? Oh, it's gone. Who do we reach out to help? What criteria affects your answer to the previous question? What prejudice do you have? Who do you pass by? Who do I pass by? I know there's a number of questions. If you want to, one of these things you could go away and if you want to discuss it over the picnic or over a meal. What is it costing me, Paul, to follow Jesus? What does it mean for me to go that extra mile? What does reaching out and extravagant and costly love to your enemies, to my enemies look like? What does binding up the wounds of those around you look like? And here's just some of my, my thoughts. I mean, I, I was just, I'm seeking to try to live like Jesus. I'm trying to do what Jesus says. And when I look, more and more I look at who Jesus is and more and more I look at his stories like this one and his life. It challenges me. He was a radical person. And I need to match my life up with him. It's easy for me as I answer these questions to think, well, so-and-so wouldn't do that. Well, the average person I know wouldn't. That's not the question. What does Jesus say? And so sometimes I think about, you know, what do we, you know, I was thinking about that question, how, what do I, you know, who do I help? And if I was honest, I was thinking about it, I Often, to help people that I get on with better. And uh, you go, well, that's natural. Yeah, it's true, it is natural, but we're called to be supernatural. You know, I was thinking, if I, if I see a notice and it says, you know, so-and-so needs help moving house, they're moving the house, they need some people to kind of help shift stuff, what thoughts go through my mind? What thoughts go through your mind? I was thinking, you know, do I know them? Are there somebody I particularly get on with? And that's when I have to decide, what well, I'm going to give them a hand. I know if Nigel and Joe are the pastor's you know, it said that they were moving a house. I suspect they wouldn't have any problems getting people to help them move house. How about somebody else? I know if I was honest, I probably would be less likely for certain people. And I think, nah, what would Jesus do? Oh, he used to have these things years ago. What would Jesus do though? Nice little things he bought W W J D. Apart from making somebody a lot of money, whatever, and it was kinda of challenging. Like, what would he do? What's some of the culture? What's some of the prejudice do we have? To be honest, I realize more and more as I reflect on it, our prejudices. And it varies. We were on holiday down in, in Bournemouth for a few weeks. And um, and you kind of walk around, and you see lots of people from different places, different locations, and different accents, different backgrounds, different skin colors, whatever. And. Uh, and I realize you no, know, I do have prejudice. There's certain things I find easy. So I know often I challenge people by not being prejudiced against Muslims. If you don't know me, I spend most of my time sharing Jesus with love and respect, inviting Muslims to know Jesus. Now I have no problem with Muslims. If I see a group of Muslims, I'm like, where? Yes. This is great. My holiday has got better. Uh, let's go and practice some Arabic. Let's go and see what God wants to do there. For some of you, that'd be, you know, like hard. It's like, oh. That might be where your heart is. But I realize that my heart is callous in other areas. You know, sometimes I wander around. The way certain people speak, I sometimes find harder. I judge them. You know, sometimes um, down at um, Pool Beach where we are, um, you know, there's sometimes busloads of people that come from certain countries and just make a load of noise. And I know in my heart, has been challenged like, am I annoyed because of the music the loudness or is there is there something deep in my heart and I'm just just sharing here because I'm going to give you some time but I want to say I'm not just throwing these questions out because I feel like throwing some questions out these are things that I'm, I'm wrestling with who do I pass by if I saw a really good friend you know if I saw one of my children kind of falling over in need you know I would stop do I have like a sliding scale in my heart this person I stopped for this one I might do if I got a little bit more time. Uh, this one I just just pray for them as I walk past them. Wait, where, where where are you? Where am I? What is it costing me to follow Jesus? You know, as as I looked upon those stories, and maybe that's the first time I've thought about it before, but yet I come back at it again the cost to the priest and the Levite, the inconvenience, the loss of livelihood. People think they were crazy to take that risk. We look at them and think they're callous. In that kind of environment, Everybody would think they're crazy if they'd reached out and helped that person. Just move on. What inconvenience is God calling us to? What inconvenience is God calling to us as a church as we want to move forward into this new season? What inconvenience does it mean for me? What inconvenience does it mean for the head of my house or the Phillips family as we seek to Follow God in this this coming season. Where are the times where people go? You're crazy. In some ways, maybe I find it easy, easier than some of you. Maybe contextually, because I, you know, my work involves working with people going to places where most people think is nuts. So when I work with people going to places like Somalia or Yemen or Afghanistan, you know, not surprisingly, have lots of conversations in relation to this. Loss of livelihood is a well, more than loss of livelihood, loss of life is a uh, thing they have to contemplate. Even some of their best friends and family, as sometimes as even churches, think they're absolutely nuts to go to the world and share what Jesus said. So that's actually quite rooted in Scripture, as far as I know. What does it mean? What does it mean? Be extravagant and love your enemies. I've been thinking about this one recently, I was in a situation, not. I, I, I do work for various different people, so this doesn't apply to me vineyard. before you start trying to think about it, but one of my work situations I was in, I would say I was slandered, um, and I was kind of forced to do some stuff that I didn't necessarily totally agree with, and I was going to put in this, you, you're wrong, and, um, and I, I found that really hard, I'm still processing it, though it happened like about a month ago. And so as I've been thinking about what my enemy looks like, I'm kind of thinking about that person, if I'm honest. I'm thinking, what would it look like for me to love them extravagantly? I have to work with that person. It's part of my role. But what would it look like to love them extravagantly, not just put up with them, not just to kind of be a little bit more careful around them in what I say and how I deal What would it look like to kind of bind up their wounds? Because I became very aware of the wounds in that situation. And oil. What does it look like? Hard. I said, it's going to be hard, didn't I? I said to you, "Did you want to go on this journey? Do you regret saying yes? (laughs) What do I need to do? Um, You can do this by yourself. Whereas some of you, if you're visiting here, you're thinking like, oh wow, this wasn't what I was anticipating when I came to church. It's normally like nice and fluffy and you know this is hard stuff Jesus was a radical but if you want to maybe break down into twos or threes whatever you feel comfortable with and just I want to just give you a little bit of time to process this it's very easy just to kind of like get some information and kind of rush off and go that was interesting or pause on one of his talks whatever I don't know why you like to categorise me out in your kind of post Sunday meal discussions but I want us to take some time to think about this And the question I want you to think about as you use these questions is, what is Jesus saying? What is he saying to you? So I'll give you a good three, four, five minutes. So get started and I'll call you back um, after that time. Can I draw you draw you back? It's always that risk when you kinda unleash people to um get into groups and discuss. If I can just have you back for a few minutes, uh you can obviously talk about this a lot more. And and that's part of what community is and wrestling with scripture and thinking it through is about I know I've given you some, some questions but my, my desire as one of the leaders in this church is wh- wh- whoever speaks in this church whatever topic they, they speak on that we take hold of these truths and we try to apply them in our lives I don't know about you I, I don't want to just read books, go to conferences, hear talks I am trying to become more like Jesus and at some point, these stories, these principles have to hit the ground. They have to kind of take grip. They have to start beginning to affect our lives in some way, however hard or difficult, some of the things that Scripture says. And um, so I to go away and think about these things. One thing I wanted to say, and I wanted just to kind of, it's kind of linked in, but bring a focus, is just to kind of, bring it right back to Jesus and what I mean by this is you can hear these principles you can take away these questions and then you can just decide to grit your teeth and try to do it you know what I mean it's like okay I mean the easiest one I can think of is maybe that one about the enemies Um, my wife was saying it well even just trying to live it out in general what does extravagant love look like let alone to my enemies but well, I can grip my teeth and just think, this is what I'm going to do. You know I've heard this talk, I've, I've read the parable, but this is all rooted. This parable came out of, "Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, soul and strength, and love your neighbor." And you've got to keep it rooted. These questions need to be rooted in that. And what I mean by that is probably a couple of scriptures. One of them, uh, I think is one John. 18 if it's not it's somewhere around there and it just says we love because he first loved us so you can look at those questions and you cannot do this i cannot do that i cannot answer these questions in a way just like jesus says unless i'm rooted and established in the love of christ as it says in ephesians because I can try to grip my teeth and try to go, this is what I'm going to do, but unless I got that foundation, I need to ask myself these questions, but I need to ask these questions in the context of that revelation that I am loved. I am loved by God. I'm in love with God. Paul, not me, um, in the, one of the letters to the Corinthian churches in the second letter, he talks about Christ's love compels me. That's what we need. That's what I need. That's what we, we need this morning. It's like we should not be compelled because Paul did this talk and maybe hopefully you saw something you've maybe not seen before in that parable. It's got to be Christ's love compels me. So as I come to, to finish, there's two things I want to just say. Let's jump a slide. Simon says, how do I need to rearrange my priorities and my lifestyle to be more like Jesus? If Jesus is, as some of the early writers said, the good Samaritan, you know, the good Samaritan even if he wasn't the good Samaritan, if that was Jesus said, go and do likewise, it was given as a model for us to follow. What does it look like? And try to just pin it down. But the second thing is, I'm going to finish with this. I'm just going to pray a blessing over you. Then I'll hand over to Nicole and David. <laughs> um, so it gives you a little bit of time to think. I just want to bless you with a blessing that there is in Ephesians 3. And there's um, a prayer that kind of Paul shared. And it's all to do with being rooted and grounded in the love of God and having a revelation of that. Because when we have that, this is what this has got to come out. This has got to be the soil from which this comes. God, I thank you for this story. I thank you, you didn't just say follow me, but you gave us some signposts and some indicators like this story. And God, it's hard. It's not easy. God, help us. Lord, we really want to love you with all our hearts, with all our minds, with all our souls, and all our strength. And we want to love our neighbor, God. Partly because you tell us, Lord, but also because when we do this, this world will be radically different. God, we talk about in this church, Lord, leading our communities into life. And that will only come about when we really love our neighbor, Lord, the way that you loved the way you talked about it, the way that you demonstrated it. But Lord, we can only do that, your word says, when we understand your love. And God, I pray for me, I pray for us as a church, open my eyes, God, open my heart, God, let me just grasp the depth and the width, Lord, and the breadth and the height of your love to an increasing extent. Show me your love, God. God. Let me experience even this morning a fresh, Lord, your love, Lord, your love, Lord, that caused you to come to earth, Lord, your love that caused you to die on the cross. Let your love undo me this morning. And help me and help each one of us, Lord, help me to vineyard, Lord, be rooted and established in your love, God. And that all that we do, all that we say, all that we are, Lord, as we seek to love our neighbors.